All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Peter Vronsky, V-R-O-N-S-K-Y. He's just published a book on February 9th, 2021. The title of the book is American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, 1950 to 2000. He's also published other books uh, with titles such as Serial Killers, Female Serial Killers, and Sons of Cain. And I also saw him very recently on Netflix uh, discussing the story of the Unabomber. And the title of that documentary was Unabomber in his own words. And his website is petervronsky.org for people who would like to order those books or take a look at those. But uh, this book really opened my mind and understanding to the phenomenon of, of serial killers and this kind of uh, true crime environment. I didn't really know that much about the background, but this uh, book really laid the foundation for me. So I'm delighted that Mr. Vronsky's here. Peter, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, hi, William. Hi, how are you? So for people who may not know your background or have not heard of you, can you talk a little bit about what led you to kind of the true crime genre and then specific book, American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years? Well, um, I, my background is um, television, documentary, investigative television work. And, and I did that for about uh, 25 years uh, during that work, I did a lot of traveling, and um, I, in December of 1979, on, on a trip to New York, ended up very briefly, um, like for something like 10 seconds tops, encountering a serial killer fleeing the scene of a double murder he had committed. He had killed two sex workers from the Times Square, or they thought from the Times Square area. It was a hotel in that area on 42nd Street, the Deuce, as it was known that back then. And, and he severed their heads and set their torsos on fire and was fleeing with their heads in a bag. And I presume he held up the elevator to make sure that the fire took hold. I was in the lobby wanting to go up. In those days, like the 70s, New York was a rough place. And if you were going to go into a hotel you've never stayed at before, I would just take a walk around the hallways before I committed to checking in. And, and so that's what I was doing, waiting in the lobby, wanting to go up. Um, it was early Sunday morning. And uh, the elevator wasn't coming down. It was stuck on the fourth floor. Damn, it annoyed me. And and so uh, it probably was held up there for like 40 seconds. But I'm 23. I'm impatient. And I'm going to give this guy, like a, you know, you jerk off. Uh, um, what, you know, how long does it take to get on an elevator? That kind of look. So... I gave him a hard look in the face and um, got a good look at it and got a sense of this guy. He looked like an office worker, uh, like a New York office worker. That's exactly what he was. And and then we did this. He was kind of a little bit, you know, zoned out. Like his eyes weren't focused on me. It was as if he didn't see me. And we ended up doing that, you know, the kind of dance. He goes le right, you go right, left, right, and then the other way. So you're both going the same direction until he kind of walked through me at one point. And 
banged me on my knees with a bag he had been soft bag he had been carrying. I never looked down at it exactly what it was, but I'll later remember that it felt like um, a bag with bowling balls in it, something round, heavy. And so I figured I'll go take a walk uh, from the floor he came from. You know, it was the top floor. I went up to the that floor, took the elevator up, figuring I'll walk down, I'll take a walk around the floor, walk down the stairwell, and, and come back to the lobby and decide, you know, if I'm going to stay there or not. So as soon as I got off the fourth floor, there's this smell of um, something burning. Um, I would have described it as uh, chicken feathers. And um, I didn't see any smoke at first, but as I walked kind of around the floor, and it was kind of interconnected almost in a U-shape as it came back the other way, I started seeing the haze, then smoke, and when I come around the corner... Um, a staff now, hotel staff, like housekeeping staff, is running around banging on doors, and there's a lot more smoke. Like I could see it kind of curling up around the, the ceiling. So I get, I get the hell out, um, go down the fire escape stair, the interior fire stairs, and um, out into a, like a second floor parking lot, down a ramp into the street as the fire department is, is arriving. And obviously, I'm not staying here. So I go somewhere else. Next day, I get to my destination, which was a film lab. And um, in the lobby, in the waiting room, there are all the newspapers and, you know, um, two uh, Times Square women or prostitutes headless torsos set on fire and I recognize right away that's what you know I had walked into the day before so when I get back to Toronto um, I didn't live in New York I was, I was in Toronto but we needed that particular film lab in New York Duart film labs when I got back to Toronto my story was about who, you know, I was checking into this hotel with burning torses, is in New York wild. Um, and the guy on the elevator was like completely out of my um, memory. I didn't think about, but probably by the time the elevators had opened, um, I had completely forgotten about him. And it probably... It has to do with the fact that at that time, the word serial killer did, was not being popularly used. It was not a word I would have heard at that time. Um, and in fact, it doesn't really enter popular usage until May of 1981, when the New York Times is going to use it to describe Wayne Williams, the child murderer. So for me, it was you know, like some kind of Alfred Hitchcock movie monster. We had serial killers. We just didn't call them that. And every serial killer from Jack the Ripper to the Boston Strangler um, it was kind of an individual aberration. There wasn't a species that we were profiling and that we had given a name to and had kind of expectations of. So the idea that an innocuous guy on the elevator you know, might be 
possibly a serial killer was not something I had imagined at that time. So I only, you know, I see he's arrested. Um, this was December of 1979. He's arrested in May of 1980. So what, six months later. And uh, probably another six months later, his picture appears in newspapers. And, I, and he's charged with the time, what becomes known as the Times Square torso killings. And so he's charged with it, and I'm reading, oh, that's the guy who, uh, you know, did that thing at the hotel I was at. And when I looked at his picture, I suddenly realized it's the guy from the elevator. His haircut was the thing that kind of burned into my memory, the odd kind of um, cut on it. And, and, and when I saw him in the, in the, in the trial... It was the same, you know, haircut, except it wasn't. I mean, that tells you a lot about, you know, kind of witness memory because um, he told me that he was wearing a wig. And, and I thought it looked weird, you know, because he was wearing a wig. And when I looked into witness testimony as well, that's what people remarked too about the strange cut on his hair. But to me, it was the same kind of cut. So it it definitely obviously is him, and um, that made me very curious about what serial killers were. What was this phenomenon that I had run into? Um, I the first book I read was actually Anne Rule's book, uh, "The Stranger Beside Me," about Ted Bundy. And um, her book didn't use the word serial killer either. It, it doesn't appear in the first edition. She published it in 1980. So it's gradually, as I'm reading this kind of literature, the, the, the word enters into our popular vocabulary. You know, profilers, um, particularly, you know, the FBI mine hunters were already using that term in the police community, but um, it wasn't a popular term that media used or, you know, was a form of literature or a species only in the 80s. So, uh, so my, you know, I kept reading as these new cases were appearing through the um, 1980s into the 1990s. And I came to a point in my television career where I kind of was fed up with TV. It was taking directions that I wasn't happy with. And I kind of thought maybe I can tell a story better in the form of a, of a, of a book. And I, you know, I hadn't written before other than like TV proposals and scripts. And so I, you know, they say, write what you know. Um, I knew a lot by this point about the history of serial killers. Um, I, you know, weighed the market, what was yeah. out there. What was the name of that serial killer that you bumped into? It was Richard Cottingham. Cod Richard Cottingham, right. Yeah, Richard. And he turned out to be like a serious uh, serial killer. Like He's, you ran into him, but he, he may have, they don't know the true number of the deaths. Is that correct? That's right. He um, started claiming in the in 2010, he suddenly appeared. He kept silent for uh, since his conviction in 1980. He kept silent for 30 years, and then suddenly he 
does this one single interview with a woman who resembles actually the woman whose head he beheaded, whose head he cut off in uh, that room. And so he, he did this single interview in which he claimed that he probably killed up to 80 women. And um, the victim, the, the daughter of the victim, about as I was finishing Sons of Cain, the daughter of the victim, Dita Godarzi, who was identified, um, despite the fact that they never found her head, but went in to see him because she wants to find her mother's severed head. And and so she asked me if I would help her. She read in my book that I had this encounter with him, that um, I kind of had a good handle on his biography and the, his, the story of his murders. And, and so she asked if I would go in with her. Uh, she befriended him. He um, She was visiting him. She needed help to kind of break down his narrative into some kind of usable information to locate the severed head and 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 you know she said you know you you can meet your serial killer because that's how i describe him in my in my book as the one you know that i met and was kind of the alpha of all my study on the history of serial killers and by the way i'm a historian um i formally took a, a phd in history about 10 years ago uh, except it's it's um, the history of espionage and international relations. <laughs> not right. you know that's a serial crime too, but not a homicidal one. So some of the techniques that I learned in analyzing uh, intelligence operations and their successes and failures in a historical context and um, kind of archival research became very helpful in in my later books um so i i think serial killers came out of came out as i was already doing my 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 first year so it was like a right. 10 you year can, you can see that that historical uh, approach in this book definitely i mean you can definitely see yeah it was intended yeah, it was intended to be a history, you know, the first one, because there, um, there, there just was no history, really. Um, and I was, you know, there were histories of individual cases. You know, every, every true crime book is a history in a way, right? It tells this kind of narrative, uh, the historical narrative. And, and, and so there were individual, you know, lots of individual case histories. Um, I really like Colin Wilson's book, um, The Criminal History of, of Mankind. And, and in a way, and, and, you know, Colin Wilson ended up writing quite a lot about serial killers. And there were chapters in The Criminal History of Mankind that um, covered the era of serial killers. But there were, there were a few chapters. And um, I also like the works of Harold Schechter, who also was writing individual cases, mostly looking at early, you know, pre-1915. You know, he did Albert Fish. He did, uh, I, well, he did actually Ed Gein as well. So a number of those cases. And, and But there wasn't one for the overall phenomenon of serial killers. There were also encyclopedias and 
but really no history per se. And so I set out to write that. And and that's what all my books became, kind of these historical um, treatments of the patterns and currents of serial homicide and its investigation, the kind of the evolution of the study of their psychopathology, profiling, um, right up to my current book, which just focuses on this three decade period and the ramp up to it. So from 1950 to 1999, but really the, the, the epidemic era was 1970 to um, 1999, where about 82% of all 20th century American serial killers made their appearance in those three, three decades. And the background of that is really fascinating. What led up to those home lives and the parents and the events? I mean, you call it like this uh, this kind of era. I think the term you used was, what was it? Something like uh, the, just the culture, you said, the seismic shift in popular culture led up to these killings. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of history and a lot of um, cultural Things and and the the thing with serial killers on every level, it's never one thing. There is no X factor. There is no um, way of kind of you know reproducing a serial killer by following a formula or creating one. Um, they're, they're, each one is individually different. There's very random um, kind of permeations in what. Um, triggers them, but my question had been really why this extraordinary 82% um, of known serial killers in those three decades. And what I realized, first of all, is that serial killers get made very early in their life, uh, around the age of, you know, some start around the age of five where their psychopathology and their fantasies around murder begin to emerge um, once they go through puberty it's uh, sexualized and they kind of are percolated where statistically on average a serial killer will commit their first murder around the age of 27 to 28 late 20s and and so at first even in my first book um serial killers the method and madness of monsters i like Many other observers felt that probably this epidemic, this peak in serial killers, had to do with the times in which they were living and killing in. Um, we, of course, the 60s were these revolutionary times in the United States from, uh, you know, the civil rights movement and the violence associated assassinations right vietnam charlie manson comes uh you know wow you know sex revolution the nuclear family this is a nuclear uh, bomb yeah yeah and and we um there's a general rise in violence and murder like a statistical rise and, and starting from the early 1960s every year there were more and more murders in the United States and rapes and abductions and, and um, killings until 
roughly 1995. It's only 1995 and it reached a certain critical mass that we began to see this dramatic decline that has persisted until about 18 months ago. And, and in fact, it's, it's, um, turning and, and whether it's going to be a permanent turn or, or whether this is just a blip remains to be seen. But certainly I thought that the problem with associating serial killers with that is, um, that since they are made in such an early age, when you start looking at that Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy generation of serial killers from the 70s, 80s, you got to back them up some 20, 25 years to when to the, the America in which they were kids. And, and so I suddenly realized the explanation for the surge probably is not when they were doing it, but when they first started thinking about doing it. And, and so, you know, if we start with Ted Bundy, he's born in 1946. Um, in, in fact, Ted Bundy and Richard Cottingham, um, 18 hours separate them wow. in terms of their birth, right? And uh, you got to look, therefore, as well at the families in which they were being raised, and um, the traumas of the time, you have to look at the parents and the fathers, as well as the mothers, and the kind of um, historical, cultural, social um, landscape of the United States in the late 1940s, a period that, um, you know, can be... Uh, labeled as the American noir. Um, in fact, that's the era in which noir movies begin to emerge, this kind of cynical look at, at, at murder. Um, and, um, and Pulp Fiction and all these detectives, yes. that was a common denominator in a lot of these killers was it their was this obsession with popular um, magazines that that you couldn't imagine on the newsstands today. Um, these were this was literature that visually um, celebrated the abduction, rape, and torture of uh, women. Uh, True Detective magazines and Men's Adventure Pope magazines, and and they had a commonality in their covers, which I remember. Uh, as a kid, uh, as as well, they 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 weren't sold under the counter. These were sold next to Life magazine, Time magazine. They were next to the comic books. They were there, and the True Detective magazines would portray. There was a model on them, posed as a woman, usually bound, um, her clothing in distress, sometimes scratched and beaten. Um, in a state of fear and um, looking off from the cover towards the buyer, towards the consumer. Um, you could have her for 15 cents, which was, you know, I think the price of those magazines. So those were kind of photographically posed. And then the men's adventure magazines, um, same thing, except the women were painted in these kind of garish poster uh, pulp like um, images, and usually the perpetrators were either Nazis or Imperial Japanese, later North Koreans, Cubans, um, you know, whoever the commie threat of, of the month was, they would be the ones perpetrating these, these 
uh, tortures. But again, the females were portrayed uh, kind of looking from the magazine towards the buyer. And once, you know, these magazines became so ubiquitous, you begin to see them appearing in the 1950s as components of serial killer fantasies and their crimes. So it's not like these magazines created serial killers. What they did is they gave them a script. Without those magazines, they might have killed in a different way. Right, and you include Gladman, you include Raider, Dennis Raider, BTK. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of these guys all had some kind of, you know, float over. I thought Gladman was somebody I didn't even know about here in L.A. I thought that was, uh, yeah, was that right, Gladman? Yeah, Gladman, yeah. yeah, Harvey Gladman, yeah. Yeah, the glamour girl killer. Um, I mean, Glattman took it to um, an extreme that I can't recall any other serial killer taking it um, to that extreme where he would actually hire freelance models and tell them he was shooting a True Detective magazine cover and and he posed them. Um, you know, willingly, they were willingly posed, uh, taking those poses, he would bind them and, and, and you know, put their clothing in that kind of disheveled state. Um, and then when the shoot is over, uh, guess what? You're not going anywhere. And he would walk himself into the, the um, kind of tableau that he had created and rape and murder the woman. And then dispose of their bodies in, um, he'd actually kill them in the desert and leave their bodies in the desert, keeping the photographs. And, yeah, and these photographs like, are on yeah. the internet today. Right. They're still out there. Um, right. Although some, I think, are, are, although they're associated with those photographs, are not actually. But uh, several genuine photos are out there because Life Magazine published them, Time Magazine published them, and then a True Detective Magazine publishes them. And Dennis Radar, he's 14 years old. Um, he's already got horny fantasies. He's actually at that point turned on by Bullwinkle cartoons, the ones with um, Dudley Do-Right, the um, Canadian Mountie, uh, who's always rescuing Nell. And and so, you know, in that cartoon, Nell usually gets tied by the villain, Snidely Whiplash, to uh, railway tracks as the train is coming. And uh, Dennis Rader reported that as a little kid, when he used to watch those cartoons, he'd get turned on by that imagery. And and so when he saw now Harvey Glattman's actual pictures in one of those True Detective magazines, he just went super um, aroused by it. And, and so no longer innocent cartoon now. Now he's got the moths, the lingerie. He already had a fetish for his mom's lingerie. Too. So when he starts actually shooting his own crime scene uh, photos, except it's of himself, he now poses dressed in female garments and bondage positions, um, creating kind of his own, you know, Glattman used real victims, uh, Dennis Rader, for a long time before he actually started killing, used himself. Um, and, and, and continually did so. It was kind of an enhancer, enabler for him, probably a, um, a masturbatory tool as well, um, totem. And, and so eventually he typically reaches that age 
late twenties and acts out on his fantasy, the first one, and and he goes into that addictive cycle like most serial killers do. It's it's an addiction essentially. Yeah, addiction. he's he's got those are the, some of the strangest pictures you could ever see are the pictures that uh, Raider took. But Gladman himself was kind of like he had one of those components of the serial killers that came after him, which was they're driving around on these freeways and dumping people off, which I don't know if it was as common before that. Would you agree with that? Or at least in L.A. Yeah, he's one of the early cases, um, again, of you know automobile being uh, critical in, 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 in the case. Certainly the 50s, you begin to see the ubiquity of serial killers operating uh, vehicles. The, the first guy that I can really pinpoint to using a vehicle was uh, Jarvis Theodore Roosevelt Cato a serial killer in the late 30s and early 40s in the Washington, D.C. area, the the DuPont Circle Killer, one who nobody has ever written about. My book is the first one to kind of describe his case beyond a, you know, a quick kind of like Wikipedia entry. And um, he used the vehicle to lure his vehicle, his victims into transport them. And certainly Harvey Gladman did. But that was an aspect, of course, of Los Angeles. Um, but usually I found tr- serial killers kind of tramped around and would come to the victim's door or they would um, take the victim to a hotel. They would meet them locally somewhere, encounter them on foot and either lure them to an isolated area or um, take them to a hotel. Uh, but vehicles, of course, after the 19, starting with the 1950s becomes such a part of the American landscape that, you know, a majority of serial killers will use a car to either lure, transport, um, a, a victim or as a location for murdering them, cars become a, a big part of it. And, and as, as the emerging highway uh, system as, as, as well. And you also like uh, got some earlier ones. There's Cato, but Hirons I'd never heard of either. These are like also the precursors. Yes, Can you talk a little bit about Hirons? Yeah, well, the Hirons, um, you know, the lipstick signature killers was, um, almost at the end of the war, 1945, um, a young serial killer who kills a number of women. He breaks into their apartments or um, manages to uh, con his way into inside their apartments. And at one site, he actually leaves a sign on um, the wall in lipstick, um, for heaven's sake, stop me before I kill again or kill more, something like that. Um, and, and so he becomes known as this, you know, signature killer, kind of literally signing the um, crime scene. But that was a word term used for about 20 years as well for serial killers. They were called signature killers because of Hiron's, um leaving behind that thing on the wall. Right? And, and he had all sorts of fine, you know, fantasies. And he becomes interesting because I think he becomes one of the longest incarcerated um, individuals in the Chicago prison system. He's uh, in the Illinois prison system. He's, uh, as I say, very young. And recently, he died several years ago, but recently there, there was in the last 20 years 
there, there was this movement that this poor old guy, he was very smart and educated. And he was a university student, you know, at a very early age when he was apprehended. But um, there was this kind of movement. I used to get a lot of letters from people to get him, um, you know, either paroled. Uh, some suggested he's completely innocent, that he should be pardoned. Um, and indeed, his his the investigation was kind of a travesty in the, in the sense that they tortured the guy. You know, this was before the Miranda rights, so he didn't have access to it. The problem is, is uh, you know, he did it. Right? The evidence, when you look at it and take away the kind of all the factors where his constitution was, you know, the his constitutional rights were violated. Um, in the end, if you just weigh that evidence and, and um, you know, his own statements, you realize it's, it's you know, it's likely uh, him. Although he didn't get a fair trial, he was correctly uh, um, convicted. Right, um, and so that's almost like the beginning movements of this kind of celebrity serial killer. Uh, would you agree with that with Hirons, that like this, this kind of public... Yeah, in a way, innocence, maybe. Yeah, in a way. Although Albert Fish, too, you know, the murder of Ruth Budd, and you know, cannibalizing her and luring her away, and writing to the family for years. So that's you know, nineteen thirties. And and but the Hiron certainly starting. You know, if we go in kind of the the modern era, Hiron certainly starts that um, you know this epoch off um, shortly. You know, um, behind Hiron's is is of course coming Ed Gein, um, Melvin Reese. As as well, the beast who's driving around um, in the Virginia area, um, attacking families who are uh, just traveling somewhere in their car. He would run them off the road. He would kill the men and and the males, and then he would abduct the 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 women and the female children. And um, he had this kind of um, cinder brick place in this remote forest in Virginia near a military air base that had been abandoned, Cinder Blick Foundation, like a basement foundation, and he you know, would drag his victims there and sexually assault them, torture them, and then bury them in, 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 in the forest. And, um, and he was, was a also a like, musician. Right. He was a musician. He was talented. He was intelligent, good-looking guy. But That's also right. obsessed with true crime, Nazism, yeah, uh, existentialism, he, nihilism, right? So he's almost kind of like had a philosophy that nothing really mattered. That's right. Yeah, he, horrible stuff. Yeah, he's kind of reminiscent of um, one of the Moors killers. Just his name just popped out, uh, out of my mind. But he's very reminiscent of of. of the guy who was also kind of into Nietzsche and right, Schopenhauer, yeah, um, the Saad, the German nihilist, the Saad. Um, Herons had um, Kraft Ebbing's textbook on right. sexual paraphilias in his um, room, and there Psycho there's a number of sexualists, right? Isn't that right? Yes, um, uh, psychopathia sexualis, I think, is the the title of the book. 
um, and and so in it there's a number of serial murders described um other as well paraphilia sexual paraphilias but a number of serial murders from the 19th century are described in that uh books so they do read up um they they study and it's not like they duplicate other serial killers, but they are inspired. I mean, Harvey Glattman had a lot to do with the BTK murders that are going to occur in the seventies and eighties um, in Kansas, just by inspiring um, Dennis Radar to script his things the way he scripted them. Yeah, it's interesting, guys. I mean, it's not just that they had an interest in Exorcist Three, which was unusual. And yeah, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Exorcist Three, of course, fits in with Danny Rowling murders in Gainesville. Um, he's kind of one of the the, the late, um, uh, you know, the last of the '90s serial killers, early '90s, and of course, he's he's committing these horrendous crimes in his college town. He's targeting. Uh, um, students arriving just as the the semester is beginning and he's breaking into their apartments he's mutilating the the victims he has his k-bar um marine u.s marine corps kind of knife uh combat knife that he's using to kill him with he's very physically strong as well and um when he's apprehended eventually he's going to um you know say that there's a kind of another um, demon driving him and it's the same one that is um, in Exorcist 3, uh, which is about, you know, serial killings that are demonically, uh, you know, are being perpetrated by a, a serial killer who's demonically possessed. And um, he actually, while he's doing the killing, he actually goes to see that, Movie. He's living in a tent in um, in Fort Lauderdale, in kind of this this forest where other homeless people are are, are staying, and and so he you know crawls out of that tent at night, committing these almost like the night stalker, committing these horrendous murders. And on one of the evenings, he goes to see this movie. It becomes kind of a theme in his explanation. Um, right. Whether again it inspires him or. You know, I don't know how serious of a Satanist Richard Ramirez was. Um, you know, holding up a pentagram on your um, hand and, uh, you know, changing out Satan uh, doesn't make you a, a practicing Satanist. You know, every teenage boy at some point is Richard Ramirez. Um, you know, isn't Satan cool? Uh, but are you, a, you know, a practicing Satanist with... A kind of a knowledge of the philosophy and practice, you know, the rituals right. and but so the, forth. The other thing wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer. Wasn't the victim who escaped? Was didn't he say Jeffrey Dahmer sat him down and watched The Exorcist Three? Well? Yes, 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 yes. I forgot about that. Yes, yeah. Um, so that was yeah exactly. The 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 it's Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite film. Right. right? The guy right. who um, survived that describes how. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, kind of like, you know, uh, on the bed, right? You know, come right. sit down here with me, <laughs> you know, tap, tap, tap. Uh, let's watch this movie and, and uh, puts on Exorcist 3, 
which is supposed to be the I, I could barely watch it. It's it's like the worst Exorcist out of that franchise, and so. Um, Indeed, and he starts kind of zoning off at all. Chanting the, or something. He said that Dahmer was chanting, I think, if I remember. Yeah, he's chanting with the figure in it. Yeah. So it raises its head again. You know, as I say, none of these things make serial killers. It's a lot of things. There's a lot of thing that goes into that cocktail. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, for some, it's the Bible. Serial killers are inspired by biblical passages as well. So, uh, nothing, there's no single factor. It's a, it's a combination, and indeed, every serial killer, as I say, is an enigma on his own. They're like a fingerprint. Each one is individual. The loops and swirls are slightly different. They kind of look the same, but when you look closer, everything is there. But there's always one thing missing, and that's that final X factor. That that unifies them all, and I have, as a historian, I have not yet put my finger on it. Other than, you know, maybe good old fashioned biblical evil, um, whatever that is. If if we ever give it a scientific name, or if we ever find it, that's you know, it's too early, I think, for us to dismiss that. The more we know, the less um, we realize we understand what motivates these guys and I like women. The, right. I was, the term that I was trying to recollect earlier in the conversation was diabolus in cultura. So just yes. all of these influences, one yes. or the other. And you kind of sum up, I mean, the concerns about the next generation, yeah. which are what we have this time. Like I'm thinking all this trauma about COVID and wars and things exactly. like that and pornography, really hardcore pornography. It's going to give rise to a whole new... I would suspect something like what's in contained in your book. That's what I fear. If my hypothesis about, um, you know, the Depression era, which broke a lot of families and degraded a lot of men, especially, you know, the traditional um, male pride associated with being the bread earner, um, the, the, you know, one who cares, takes care of his family, all that is stripped of um, a whole generation of men. And, and and as well, that means that the women, the mothers now have to be more assertive. So here we get the emergence of the Ed Gein, very controlling mother. A lot of serial killers talk about, um, the, you know, the, the kind of dominance and controlling of their mother. And there is a psychological theory why that may make a, a, a boy as he's trying to navigate um, autonomy from his mother, if it's frustrated by a dominant assertive mother, he develops a rage towards first his mother, but then begins to supplant it towards other female uh, figures. So it's not a far-fetched theory. And, and definitely, after, you know, with depression and the Second World War with the husbands and fathers away at war, women have to be assertive. And, and, and then you have all these men coming back traumatized from the war, which we really underestimated how bad it was, the Second World War. We have, you know, PTSD diagnosed for the Vietnam War, but Second World War, we had this kind of vague term, anything from shell shock to um, combat fatigue, uh, battle neurosis, uh, combat stress reaction, and nobody knew how to deal with it. It, it was like, you know, 30% of 
um, combat veterans from the Second World War, their disability awards were um, for neuropsychiatrical impairment. Uh, 37% of those who were discharged and sent home from U.S. combat troops were sent home as neuropsychiatric casualties. So, so uh, you know, you had a huge wave of damaged men who are now raising children and damaged families um, who just came back from the war not the same as they were before, as Dennis Rader's father did, as um, Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper's father was this heroic commando at Anzio who just saw one week too much of um, heavy combat against the Hermann Goering division there. So um, that gives us, you know, one prospect. Then you have those magazines there that shapes their fantasies. And so my worry for the future is if my hypothesis is correct, um, you know, we we had the 2008 financial crisis, which left families damaged as deeply as the Great Depression did. Um, We have a war on terror, which by its very nature cannot be talked about. It's a clandestine war uh, in the same way that World War II veterans didn't talk about it. Unlike the Vietnam War, which we all shared every evening on, on TV, even though it still wasn't shown on TV as really as horrific as it was, but we got an idea. You didn't have that for the Second World War. It was all, you know, John Wayne heroics, all very clean. While, you know, after Vietnam, the U.S. Defense Department keeps journalists at arm's length, and um, the war on terror is clandestine by its very nature anyway, so it can't be talked about. And worse, it's not just fathers that are coming back from that war on terror, but it's now the mothers as well as women have gone into the armed forces on you know on combat duty as well. Right. You know, and then if you want to expand oh, the Diabolus and Cultura, I mean, this generation yeah. is being exposed to all kinds of movies and stuff that you know yeah, the, the, the offspring of that is going to the psychological yeah. offspring of that will be very interesting. Yeah, add the COVID crisis to that, um, you know, what the impact that's going to have on the generation of kids on top of everything I just described. And, you know, we'll know in 15, 20 years if if my hypothesis is correct, especially if homicides now rebound. You know, if that trend now, because these things come in waves and every successive wave is somehow bigger than the preceding one. And 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 so it worries me what's going to happen in 10, 15 years if um, homicide rates now start once again surging upwards the way they did in the 1960s and go for 30 years or 40 years before they drop off again if there's anybody left alive in 40 years, because I highly doubt it. I don't think we have more than 20 years left on us. <laughs> All right. Well, Peter, we are at 47 minutes, so uh, it was really a delight to talk with you. With you, Congratulations on the book. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before um, we wrap it up? No. Um, I, I am uh, happy to have uh, talked with you. Uh, my books are available anywhere books are, are sold, you know, Amazon, um, uh, iBooks. Uh, so uh, you can as well – 
you could go to my uh, website, petervronsky.com and petervronsky.org um, for everything I do and links to my uh, books. And it was a pleasure uh, being on and talking about my new book. It was a pleasure for me as well. Again, the title of the book is American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, 1950 to 2000 by Peter Vronsky, just published February 9th, 2021. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks so much, William. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care.